0: Angela and I were in a Christian bookstore yesterday the day before i don 't even remember my My days are blurry sometimes um, with uh with all the all the things we keep up with um, I was in a Christian bookstore and i I was really struck by something um i I love books I am a collector of books and um And so I I noticed on the shelf in this bookstore, it's a very large bookstore in Katy, and it listed, it had um, almost floor to ceiling this category, bestsellers. Bestsellers. And uh, what I noticed while I was looking at that bookshelf was... There was only one book on the bestseller bookshelf and there were actually two book two or three bookshelves side by side so they were like probably 50 books or so on the bestseller category <clears throat> and there was only one book that actually focused on Bible study every other book on the bestseller list was under the Christian living category and what that tells me is that the vast majority of people, the vast majority of Christians, it seems like, are drawn to books that tell, tell you the lessons someone else learned as they were studying the Bible, as they were living out the Christian life. It seems to me that the vast majority of people are drawn to books that tell me what you learned when you walked with God. What you got out of reading the Scripture, as opposed to actually teaching me how to study God's Word for myself. I know you're wondering why a comb just fell out of my pocket. He doesn't have any hair. <clears throat> I do have hair. Um, anyway, where do we go from here? Might have to edit that part out. It gets tangled. <clears throat> anyway, the reason for this sermon series and now the reason we are starting In His Steps, Volume 3, is because I don't want a second-hand faith. I don't want second-hand gospel. I don't want second-hand living. I want to know the Word of God and I want to know the God of the Word. And so that is why we take this time and we break down these passages and we're, we're perfectly willing to take a slow walk with the Lord. This is not a, mar- it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. So we're not trying to just rush through the Scriptures as fast as we can and so we can get on to other things. Trust me, folks, this is the best thing you could be doing. This is the best thing we could be studying, the life of Jesus Christ and the lessons that we learn from it. And so you know it's it's interesting if you've ever like tried to have a conversation with someone and they're like a power walker, like I have a very fast stride, and Angela has repeatedly told me to slow down. She doesn't walk that fast, but I do, and so if she tries to keep up with me, she'll be out of breath. But if I slow down, we can both have a conversation where we're all breathing normal, and she's not like <sighs> <sighs> so. What we're doing is we're taking a walk with Jesus. We're walking in his steps. Because what we want to learn is what is the scripture speaking to us? Not what God spoke to somebody else and now they've given us seven life lessons for living our abundant life now. Whatever. I want to know the word of God. I don't want to know sound bites. I don't want to know Instagram quotes. I want to know what the Word of God says because when the enemy came against Christ in the the wilderness, the three temptations, every time the enemy came against Jesus with a temptation, how did Jesus respond? With Scripture. With Scripture. Not, Not sound bites, not little cute quotes, but with Scripture. And that is the power for us. When the enemy comes against us, the power is in the Word of God. Amen? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Mark chapter 7. We'll get there in just a moment. So we're in volume three of In His Steps, and today is part one called Off the Deep End. Now it's been a couple weeks since we've been covering this, so let me let's go back just real quickly. We need to remember where Jesus has been, where he's coming from, where he's going. Just prior to the story that we're covering today, Jesus was in southern Lebanon, which is just north of Israel. So he's left Israel. He's left the people of Israel. And he's gone to southern Lebanon, and he has encountered uh, a woman. Now, this, the people in this area, they did not worship the God of Israel. It's in the Gentile region of Tyre. And a woman whose daughter was demon-possessed was so desperate for a miracle And somehow she heard about Jesus. She heard about what He could do. And so when she encountered Jesus, she actually called Him by a messianic title, Son of David. She exercised great faith that Jesus could heal her little girl and that He had a heart of compassion to actually do it, to to look beyond any of the barriers and actually heal her daughter. So Jesus heals the little girl he leaves southwestern Lebanon, and he begins to head back towards the Sea of Galilee. Now, most of you have Bibles that have maps in the back, and, uh, and so I encourage you to you just you know, look through there so that you can see where I'm talking about. So he and his disciples begin a several-day journey back to the northern area of the Sea of Galilee, and this is where we find him in Mark chapter 7, beginning in verse 31. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. Decapolis means ten cities. So there were ten cities that were very close together. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. So people in the crowd had been waiting for Jesus' return. They brought him a deaf man who had also speech impediment. Now, a person who is deaf will have a tremendous amount of difficulty sounding out words because they don't know how the words sound. So we're not clear, the, the is not clear if the man is completely mute um, or if he just has a speech impediment that has been exacerbated by his deafness. These people, though, had heard about Jesus. They had heard what Jesus can do, and they begged Jesus to put His hands on the man to heal him. They're expecting that Jesus can do it. There's an anticipation that's building. They have faith. We assume they have faith. They didn't bring the man to Jesus to see Jesus not heal him. They begged him to actually lay his hand on him because they believed that he could do it. So verse 33, it says, "In taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, touched his tongue. Whoa, 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 Jesus. Jesus is doing a little something different here. First, he took the man away from the crowd. Jesus was going to heal the man, but he was going to do it in a very unusual way. And sometimes when God is about to do something powerful in your life, he's got to get you away from those people that will express fear and doubt and unbelief in your heart. He's got to silence those voices. So the only voice you're listening to is his. Now, this man is deaf. So he's probably an expert on reading people's facial expressions. Jesus does not want him focusing on anyone or anything except what is right in front of him. He's not blind. He's just deaf and has a speech impediment. I want you to just picture yourself in this story. If you are the deaf and mute man, Jesus has pulled you away from everyone else. He's looking into your eyes. He sticks His fingers in your ears. He gets you to open His mouth. He spits on His fingers and then touches your tongue with the finger that just came out of your ear. Right. You get it. It's got to be one of the most bizarre experiences of your life. But he did this most likely to signal to the man what his healing word was about to do. Otherwise, the man wouldn't have known. Verse 34. And looking up to heaven, he sighed. He groaned and said to him, Ephapha. That is, be opened. Jesus let out this deep sigh, this deep groan. This wasn't, I don't believe this was an uh, exasperated sigh. I don't believe it was a groan out of frustration. Paul used the same Greek word for groan and sigh multiple times, referring to a deep longing, a deep desire. Jesus wasn't frustrated at this man. He wasn't frustrated at the people that brought him. He wasn't tired of healing people because it wasn't any work for him. He wasn't irritated at this man's need. And it wasn't any more work for Jesus to heal this man than anyone else he has healed. I believe the sigh or the groan was a verbal demonstration of his deep desire to heal him and the frustration of the man's limitations that he's had his whole life. This man's whole life has been limited by his disability. But his disability will be over with the encounter of Jesus. So Jesus gave a verbal command saying ephatha, which means be opened or open up. This word comes from a Hebrew Aramaic word that means to open something that was sealed or to open thoroughly. Verse 35. And his ears were opened and his tongue was released and he spoke plainly. Whatever caused this man to be deaf and mute was gone in an instant. This man could hear the command, I'm sorry, he could not hear the command of Jesus. He may not have even known what was going on. Jesus didn't ask him any questions about his faith. He didn't ask him how regular his synagogue attendance was. How devout he had been. If he was a regular in giving of the sacrifices to the temple. He didn't have the man write on the chalkboard what his disability was or what had caused him to be deaf and mute. Jesus didn't need any of that information. The creation heard the command of the Creator and the man was healed. Jesus identified the need. He spoke directly to it and He said to His ears and to His speech, Open up. Be loosed. And it happened immediately. So that the man who could not hear And the man who could not speak could now speak plainly. Imagine the shock of being able to not only hear, but also to be able to speak intelligently when you have not been able to your whole life. You're going to want to tell everyone so they can hear what Jesus has done for you. But, in verse 36, It says, and Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. Verse 37, and they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. Amen. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Jesus repeatedly told people to keep things quiet because he didn't want to stir the crowds up too much. That was not his motivation. They were looking for a political leader to get Rome out of their country. They were looking for a political Messiah, not a spiritual one. And Jesus knew that if the crowds were stirred into a frenzy over his miracles, they could push him towards a throne when he was headed for the cross. When Jesus heals people such as this deaf man, we tend to view these miracles in the Gospels as interruptions. But given the promises of the Old Testament to restore the world to the way it was at the beginning, miracles are not an interruption of the natural order, but a restoration to the natural order. We're so used to a fallen world with sin and sickness and disease and pain and death where they seem natural. In fact, they are the interruption. Jesus's supernatural miracles are, are a return to the truly natural. So let's flip over to Mark chapter 8. We're looking at another unusual miracle of Jesus, Mark 8:22. <clears throat> Jesus is on his way and it says verse 22, they came to Bethsaida and some of the people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. So Jesus makes his way to Bethsaida it's a part of north northeastern part of the sea of galilee bethsaida means house of fish so this is going to be a fishing village and it may have been the home base for Andrew Peter James and John their fishing company that they had as Jesus is making his way the crowd brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him so that he might be healed where is Jesus headed he's actually headed to a town called Caesarea Philippi It's a very, very unusual place for a Jewish rabbi to be taking his disciples, and we'll cover that next week as to where he's going, why he's going there, and the very unique thing he does when he gets there. But that's where he's headed, and so he's on his way. He gets to Bethsaida, and this man is being brought. Once again, a man is brought to Jesus, but this time he's blind. Verse 23, And Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village, and when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? So once again, Jesus takes the man away from the crowd. The Greek word here implies that Jesus took hold of the man and led him with a sense of urgency. This man obviously has no idea, he has no idea where he's going. He's blind. So Jesus is leading him out of the town. And again, I want you to put yourself in the place of this blind man. You're completely blind. You don't know where you're being led. You don't know who's around you or what's going on, what's about to happen. And all of a sudden, the man who's leading you stops. He puts his hands on your shoulders. and You're looking around, but you can't see anything because you're blind. Your eyes are wide open. And then he spits in your face. He spits right in your face. I absolutely believe, I have to believe, that in that moment, Peter leaned over to Andrew and said, Betty didn't see that coming. Because that's what I would have said had I been there. A tad bit irreverent. <laughs> and no! No! He didn't see it coming because he was blind. But just for a moment, before Jesus says anything to you with spit dripping off your face, what would go through your mind? People with disabilities, diseases, and limitations were not part of regular Jewish society. They were left out of religious rituals. They were thought to be living in sin because of their disability. So they weren't able to participate in Passover. They couldn't celebrate under the Sukkah during the Feast of Tabernacles. They couldn't get their sins forgiven during the ceremonies of Yom Kippur. Imagine so desperately wanting to attend church, but not being allowed to. Not being able to. You aren't allowed to come to the Christmas candlelight service. You can't attend Easter Sunday. You don't get to serve at Vacation Bible School or go to any of the men's or women's retreats because you're treated as if you're the living embodiment of sin. What these people had to deal with was so much worse than what we think of today. They were completely ostracized in every way, physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually. And then, as if that's not enough, the person that they think is the Messiah spat in the man's face. And it probably was not the first time the man had been spat upon. The thing about a blind person is that you can abuse them, spit on them, trip them, and be nasty to them, and they don't know who did it. So here's the man standing in front of Jesus with his eyes wide open, maybe expecting a miracle, and Jesus spit right in his open eyes. He probably flinched, as we all would. And then Jesus said, Do you see anything? What a loaded question. You just spat in the poor man's face and you've asked him if he can see anything. But something happened. The man started looking. The cloudiness in his eyes Began to give way. And for the first time, he started to see. But something was wrong. Verse 24. And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. He could see people moving around, but they looked like living trees, meaning that there was no definition to their features. They were like shadows moving around. This is the first and only scenario of an incomplete miracle of Jesus. Typically, whatever action Jesus took, whether that be speaking the word, laying his hands on people, or just acknowledging that person's faith, the miracle happened right away. It didn't halfway happen. But here, it did. The blind man, only got half a miracle it 's the only time in the Gospels where Jesus has to heal someone twice and it 's the only time he 's ever asked about the status of the healing so how did jesus respond and let me just say before we move on I know there have been uh, there there have been uh, folks that have expressed where they they felt they received a healing and then over time um, the healing uh, began to degrade and they weren't sure whether they really got their healing in the first place or whether Jesus was really going to heal them or whatever. This is a perfect example for you if you've ever been in that situation where you were healed but things didn't go exactly according to plan. There's hope and we find that in this passage. Verse 25, this is how Jesus responded. Then Jesus laid His hands on His eyes Again, and he opened his eyes, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. What's so interesting about the difference between verse 24 and 25 is verse 24, when the man looked, it uses the Greek word anablepo, but in verse 25, it's diablepo. So verse 24, it's anablepo, verse 25, it's diablepo. Why is that significant? Weird-sounding Greek words. Anablepo means to look at. Diablepo means to look through. Sometimes we try to look out in faith and all we see are the obstacles in our path. All we see are all of the things that stand between where we are now and where we want to be in the future. We see all of the obstacles, all of the problems, all of the difficulties, all of the speed bumps we're going to hit, When we go from where we want to be to where we feel like God is taking us, that's looking at. That's anablepo. Instead of looking at our obstacles in that way, we have to look through them. And by faith, we have to see the finish line. With eyes full of faith, see the day when God's healing touches your body. With eyes full of faith, see the day when the miracle you've been waiting for comes to pass. See the day when that lost family member you've been praying for comes down to the altar and accepts Christ. See the baby. See the day when you hold the baby in your arms that you've been longing for. See the day when the thing that you've been praying for and wrestling with God about comes to pass. That's looking through instead of just looking at. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ is more than just taking a first look. It's more than taking just a first glance at Christ and being satisfied with the limited amount that you see and know. Can you imagine if that man, the blind man, had said, well, this is better than I've had. Thanks, Jesus. This will work. And we do that. God longs to do something in our life, and He longs to do a miracle in our life, and we're perfectly satisfied with just half of it. It reminds me of something that I, I uh, share sometimes in men's groups. You know, when I, I, I do a lot of funerals, I share with a lot of folks, and I hear these family members that get up and say, "If I was just half the man my daddy was, if I was just half the, the, the mom that my mother was, I'd be happy." And we have these people that are perfectly willing with being half. I don't want to be half. I want to have the mentality of Elisha. I don't want to be half. I don't want to have half the anointing. I want twice what you've got. I don't want to be a half portioned person. I want to be a double portion person, that is godly and is, is uh, full of integrity and is, is amazing uh, as a, as an amazing ministry as my dad had. I don't want to have half that. I want to have twice that. And it's not for me. It's it's for God to use me. And we have people that are perfectly willing at, at accepting half. Instead of accepting the whole or saying, you know, I want twice that. Jesus, I'd like to see out of both eyes. I'd like to hear out of both ears. Being a disciple of Jesus is more than just taking a first glance and being satisfied with the limited amount that you have, that you know. It's more than a first glance at what it means to be a Christian. When you make a commitment based on first sight only, it will not stand the test of discipleship. So what does that mean? That means that when you accept Christ, that's the beginning of your journey. That's not the end of it. That is the first step in a life of discipleship. What does it mean to be like Jesus Christ? And if you stay on that foundational level and say, thank you, Jesus, for saving me, I'm good, I got it from here, you won't make it. It will not stand the test of discipleship because life will attack you. The enemy will attack you. Bad things will happen. And in that moment, all you have is this limited experience with Jesus when you need so much more. What we need to understand is that this miracle happened after a conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. And he rebuked his disciples for, all, for having half-sight. He rebuked them for only seeing him as the coming king and not seeing him as the suffering king. We need to see Jesus as he is, not as how we want him to be. He's either the Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. That means we let Jesus have total uh, access to every area of our life, that there's nothing off limits to Jesus, that he is the Lord of our life. Lords tell their subservients what to do. Lords tell their subordinates, they tell their servants what to do. And when God begins to tell us what to do, it is not our place to say, no thanks. I got it. I can figure this out on my own. Our job is to say, yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Whatever Jesus tells us to do is what we should do. And we give him total access to every area of our life where nothing is off limits. Mark is the author of this gospel account. And he almost seems to say in this passage that the man's sight wasn't fully restored until the man took it seriously until he acted in faith, until he looked with the intention of being able to see. Being a disciple of Jesus is about looking through all the clutter, tuning it all out, and continuing to look at Jesus. It seems to me that we often get distracted by peripheral issues. We often get distracted and and spend a lot of our time discussing the things that divide us instead of the thing that unites us. And we get so caught up in the world and how it communicates and what it communicates that we get absolutely distracted and get our eyes off of Jesus Christ. This world is fallen. This world is full of sin. It's full of sinful people. Its days are numbered. We do all we can to preach the gospel, to share the gospel with people, but these people, as we all do, we live in a fallen world, a fallen culture. There's only so much we can do. Its days are numbered. We've read the book. We know how it'll end. This world will be destroyed. And so while we do our best to, to save people, the mentality of, of just... This is, this is way early for the election... But just understand the idea of just electing the right people into office will fix every problem. You are naive if you think that. All we do is elect fallen people. And they may say the right things, but folks, they've been saying the right things for a long time. So don't think we just need to get new politicians in office. We just need to get new people in there and they'll fix all our problems. No, they don't. They just create new problems that we didn't have before. All right i got to say that now because we don't really get political. <clears throat> but I just feel like I need to make sure we all understand Jesus is the hope for the world. Jesus is. No politician. They're not Jesus. All right. So when the man looked through the fog that was in his eyes, when he looked intently, when he looked as if he could see what was right In front of him, the fog lifted, and he saw everything clearly. And do you know what was the first thing this man laid his eyes on? Jesus. What a moment. What a moment that must have been. To have the very first thing you lay your brand new eyes on be God in flesh. We have to answer the question, was Jesus really the Messiah? I know most of us, we've accepted Christ, so we believe that. But the world still asks us, how can you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? How can you really believe that? 700 years before Jesus was even born on this planet, the prophet Isaiah wrote in Isaiah 35 this passage, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, those who battle anxiety, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense or the action of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. Isaiah is saying that the Messiah will come and do things that only God can do. He can unstop deaf ears. He can loosen a man's tongue so that he can sing praises to God. He can open blind eyes. And he can cause a man who's lame, who's never walked a day in his life to leap and jump in the courts of God. And that happened in the book of Acts. A man who had never learned to walk. A man who had been lame, from birth. You know how long it took my, my twins to learn how to walk? It took a bit. It didn't happen overnight. And I mean, I told them, hurry up. Come on, get with the program. we got places to be. I can't carry you everywhere. You need to hurry this up. Come on. There's two of you. And the, you know, the older you get, the heavier you weigh. It's like walking around with two 20-pound sacks of flour everywhere you go. It gets old. Hurry it up. You know, let's put roller skates on you so you can just skate everywhere. People don't learn how to walk overnight. When you have an injury, let's say you're in the hospital and you're laid up for a while, your muscles begin to atrophy. And they have to teach you how to walk again. You have to stretch those muscles and ligaments and you have to work out. You have to go to physical therapy because the the time you spend in a hospital bed has worked against you. 30 days, 60 days, I don't know how long it takes. For your muscles to atrophy and, and and fight against you and you have to stretch them out and work them out. The man in the book of Acts had never walked a day in his life, born lame, never was taught by his parents to put strength to his ankles, to stand up to try, because he couldn't hold his own weight. And yet in the in that moment, God not only healed him and gave him the ability to stand. But in the book of Acts, it says he was jumping and leaping in praise to the Lord. God doesn't, he's not going to do something halfway. If he did it, he's going to do it. And so if you feel like you've gotten half of a miracle, just hold on. Because when God does it, he'll do it all the way. He doesn't want half-healed people walking around. Was Jesus the Messiah? Absolutely, yes, He was. First of all, the phrase in Isaiah 35, 4, where it says, He will come and save you, is the Hebrew word Yasha, which is uh, all the the letters Y, S, H, they're all uh, the same Hebrew word Yeshua, which is the Hebrew version of our English word Jesus. Jesus, the primary name of the Son of God, the name that the angel told Joseph to name the baby, Jesus is right there in a prophecy 700 years before His birth. He will come and be Jesus. He will come and save you. Salvation is His identity. It was His mission. And it was His authority. Secondly, Jesus fulfilled Over 300 prophecies. Every single one of the prophecies about the Messiah he fulfilled. And it's not an easy task. Over 300 of them. With that in mind, suppose Jesus comes to you at your point of need. He's willing to do something miraculous in your life. All he expects you to do is believe that he can do it and act in faith. What will you do? Many of us would do some mental math calculating the risk versus reward. We would ask ourselves, is this step of faith worth it? Will it really pay off? Will I look stupid to everyone if God doesn't come through? We might even think, Lord, I need to see a little bit of the miracle before I step out in faith. That's not not how faith works. That's not how steps of faith work. You take a step before you see the pavement. You take a step before you see the result because you trust that God will keep His Word. And so you've got, to stop, you've got to stop asking yourself questions like that. Is the risk worth the reward? With God, the risk is always worth the reward. He never asks us to step out in faith where He has not already made a way for us. We don't see it, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. He never expects us to obey Him when He has not done His part. He'll always do his part when we take him at his word and do our part. Jesus stuck his fingers in the deaf man's ears. He spit on his finger and then he touched it to the guy's tongue. Then he spit in the face of a blind man. The disciples probably thought, okay, Jesus has gone off the deep end, fellas. He's gone a little loony. Maybe the Lord of the Sabbath needs to take a bit of a sabbatical. Yes, it looked unusual for Jesus to do what He did. Had He gone off the deep end? Yeah, because that's where Jesus lives. Jesus took the disciples to deep waters where they would have the biggest catch of fish they ever had because He knew what happens in the deep places. Jesus gave the believers... The Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 to take us to spiritual depths we could not have gone to without Him. He takes us to risky places. He takes us to places where our faith charts the course because our eyes cannot yet see the destination. He takes us to places where we have to have faith. Faith that reminds us that you cannot discover new oceans unless you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. You cannot discover new oceans unless you have the courage to lose sight of the shore. With God, the risk is always worth the reward. We had one question come up, and I, I didn't mention it at the beginning where we were doing the questions. But hopefully, that was uh, you know that in this series we, we take questions, um, so you can feel free to to share them or text them during the week if you think of one for this message in particular. Uh, One question came in, it says, Jesus often cautioned people not to proclaim the miracles He performed on them, but they go about publishing the miracles despite the warning. Would you consider that disobedience? Yes. Yes, it is definitely disobedience. However, I think there's clearly a measure of grace. I think that uh, the... Jesus understands, again, for this man who's never been able to hear, never been able to speak, um, he is going to want to tell everyone. The man who couldn't see is now going to be able to see colors that he couldn't see before, people that he wasn't able to see before. Yes, he disobeyed. They, they disobeyed repeatedly. Um, and it, it, and it, it frustrated him, uh, I'm sure, but at the same time he understood uh, but you need to also understand, as I said earlier, the purpose for that is it was to make sure that the crowds didn't stir, uh, get stirred up so much that they were trying to create this political overthrow. Jesus was trying to make sure that his final destination was the cross and not in a political parade announcing him as the king of Israel. I'll ask our worship team to come on up. Would you stand with me this morning? These two stories give us comfort. Jesus used unusual methods to say the least. Now, we've thought about instituting some of Jesus' methods here at Friendship Church, whatever need you may have. Of course, I'm just kidding. There are some stories of previous pastors. There was a one, one woman, I think, came down for prayer in one church service. Not here. Uh, you can be thankful for that. Um, she was complaining of stomach problems or whatever and one, one uh, evangelist punched her right in the gut and she was healed. Which we would certainly hope so uh, or she'll sue the socks off your evangelist. <clears throat> that, that's actually a, a, a story that happened a long time ago. Um, but sometimes God uses unusual methods. Now, um, we try not to punch people. We try not to spit in people's faces. Um, we, uh, we pray. Jesus can do what He wants. Um, we, we try to keep things uh, slightly less violent and, and invasive. Um, but Jesus used unusual methods. The blind man was not healed instantly. He was healed progressively. At times, Jesus may ask us to do unusual things. He may ask us to step out in faith and take a risk. But we have to remember that when we do that, He's ready to meet us in that risky place. Think about it for a moment. It would make sense for fruit to grow near the trunk of a tree. It would make sense for that to happen. If fruit grew near the trunk of the tree, it would be a way would be sheltered from the, the, the uh, violent winds. It would be safe. In the shade from the sweltering heat. If fruit grew near the trunk of the tree, that would be the safest place in the world for the fruit to grow. But it doesn't grow there. It actually grows as far away from the safety of the trunk of the tree as it can get. Out on the farthest branches of the tree. What that tells us, a life lesson, is if you want to bear fruit, you've got to be willing to go out on a limb you want to bear fruit, you've got to be willing to go out on a limb. You've got to be willing to step out in faith when God asks you to do it. To look through this problem with God's eyes, with His vision, and see His solution. And to live out there on the edge with Jesus, where it's risky, but it's rewarded. The worship team is going to lead us in a song as we close this morning. God has spoken to you about something. God has put a dream in your heart. God is asking you to take a step of faith, then I encourage you to step out. I want to pray with you that God will strengthen your faith and that you'll have the courage to do whatever He's asking you to do. So if that's you today, if you'd like prayer for anything in your life, I encourage you to come forward as the worship team leads us in this final song.